Welcome uh, to the Parkway Church. Thanks for, uh, th- thanks for being here this morning. As we just read, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, hopefully finishing that uh, passage uh, today. If you weren't here last week, uh, you weren't the only ones that were uh, skipping because uh, two-thirds of our staff was home with COVID, including yours truly. So uh, before we begin, a big thank you to uh, Tim and, uh, and then also to Greg Foster for, for stepping in and, uh, and preaching and uh, leading in worship uh, so, sort of last minute. That obviously wasn't the plan, but plans change. Here's kind of what happened uh, uh, back over the past couple of weeks. So Wednesday, January 5th, I'm being a really good friend. I'm sitting at uh, Hat Creek uh, for DJ's son's birthday, uh, and we're having lunch, and then all of a sudden I get a phone call from Jared Lawson. So I do what I always get a, a, what I do when I, when I, what I always do, I can't speak. You, you think after years of doing this that I would, uh, I'd be somewhat good at it, but uh, I do what I always do whenever I get a call from uh, Jared, which is I don't answer it. It goes to his head if you answer it, you know, and uh, so I had to make him work for it. Uh, and, uh, and then uh, I planned that after lunch I would call him back, but immediately uh, after getting the phone call, I got a text from him saying that his family had tested positive for COVID. So I call him back. Uh, and he says, sure enough, his, uh, his kids had tested positive, and uh, he and Claudia had some symptoms as well. So he asked me if I could preach for him. So I said, sure. So that was the plan. I was going to uh, teach theological equipping, and then I was going to preach this particular sermon here, 1 Corinthians 14, 33 uh, through uh, 40. And so that was kind of the new plan. But that meant that I only had a couple of days to prepare uh, a sermon. So I was going to teach, and then I was going to preach uh, so I just kind of holed up in my office all Wednesday afternoon. I spent that entire afternoon studying for and writing this very sermon that Jared was supposed to preach, which means if it stinks, it's actually his fault, and so blame him. Now, as I'm writing the sermon, I'm thinking, you know what? I don't feel great myself. In fact, I would describe it as that, kind of not great. Uh, that's kind of the slogan of Omicron, all right? It's kind of not great. And, uh, and so my... So that's how I felt, but then my feeling of not greatness was kind of masked by uh, the adrenaline rush that I was experiencing in this moment because I'm having to do double duty. I'm having to teach and also preach the same weekend, not to mention the fact that with very little prep time, I'm preaching one of the easily most controversial texts in the entire New Testament. Again, thanks, Jared. And... uh, And so I labored through that discomfort, though. I was able to knock out a significant portion of prep work uh, that day. Then I woke up the next day, Thursday morning, and I was worse from kind of not great to fairly bad. I had fever, aches, all of those uh, kinds of things. Now, I still felt like I would be good to go by Sunday. I felt like I'd be able to preach and teach, just isolate before and after services, I thought it'd be kind of like Jordan in the big flu game or the food poisoning game or whatever it was. And uh, so I thought that would be super impressive. But I reached out to the elders and out of uh, their collective wisdom, we kind of all decided that it would probably be best uh, out of an abundance of caution for, uh, for me not to be here and then for us to do what we did, which is cancel theological equipping and let Tim preach. Uh, so we always hate to cancel tech. I think that's the only time we've ever done that. Again, Jared's fault. Uh, but that's what happened uh, last week. Then my family got sick, 
And we actually tested positive. We spent five days in quarantine. I lost seven pounds, so not all bad news. Uh, and then this week, Carl and Tim both got it. So that's kind of where uh, we are. They're, they're out this morning for that reason. What does that have to do with our text? Literally not a thing. I just thought you should know the story. And, uh, and it's a good chance to make fun of Jared. So let's pray. And then we'll uh, get into our text together. First, pray for yourself. You, having read the text, you know there are some controversial things in here, and maybe that bothers you. Or maybe you're distracted, maybe you're uh, angry about something happening in your life, maybe you're sad, depressed, maybe it's the anniversary of something in your life that's been uh, really sorrowful. Pray for yourself that the Lord would give you not only eyes to see and ears to hear, but also a heart that would love and treasure and trust his word. And the next, will you pray that for those around you, that uh, collectively we would not only hear it uh, today, but that we would treasure it, we'd find it to be good and right and true. And then lastly, would you pray for me? So, Father, we ask for your help that uh, through your Son and by your Spirit you would uh, give us grace this morning as we consider your word that uh, you would protect us from the work of the enemy who would seek to um, uh, either make us disbelieve your word or make us uh, suspicious of your motivations and your intentions and to think that it's uh, somehow your um, uh, that you're working to oppress us or to uh, rob us of joy. I pray that you'd help us to see that you're good and you do good and, uh, and that even in this word, uh, there is goodness and grace to be found. And so I pray that you'd help us because you are good. And so we pray it in Christ's name, amen. First Corinthians 14, 33 says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. So this is now our fourth and, again, hopefully final message in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, which we began all the way back on December 5th. And so because of Christmas and then because of last week, this has actually kind of lingered uh, for about two months. So let's talk about the context to kind of remind ourselves of what's happening, all right? The Corinthians are an absolute mess. This is a train wreck. If you had a friend who was going to this particular church, you would say, find a new church, right? It is a mess. It's like an episode of Jerry Springer, if that reference makes any sense to you. People are sleeping with their stepmoms. Some are getting uh, drunk at church during communion. Members are suing each other. People are going to temple prostitutes. They're arguing over food sacrifice to idols, uh, etc. And then in chapters 12 through 14, the particular Corinthian disorder that Paul is going to turn his attention to is going to be related to spiritual gifts. And in particular, the Corinthians loved the spiritual gifts which were more miraculous, more supernatural. In particular, they loved the gift of tongues. And we define tongues as supernaturally given foreign speech. Maybe that's another earthly language. Maybe it's some sort of heavenly language. There's a lot of theories and opinions about that. But in general, tongues is speaking in a language, uh, not your own, through some sort of supernatural means. In other words, not because you're bilingual, not because you studied Spanish for five years or something like that. So that's tongues. And the Corinthians loved all the miraculous gifts, but in particular, they loved the gift of 
tongues. The problem was the way that they exercised those gifts were often really distracting to others within the church, right? Like if you buy a child a really annoyingly loud toy so that no one else can enjoy their Christmas, not that that definitely happened to me this past year, but that's what's happening in chapters 12 through 14. So in these chapters, Paul is going to respond to this historical context by regulating the gifts. And he's going to say that which is most important when it comes to the gifts isn't which gift looks the coolest or which one gets the most praise, but rather which one is the best expression of love as measured by which one actually builds up the body. So there's this corporate aspect to the gifts. It's not intended for your individual edification uh, alone. It is intended for corporate edification. It's, it's intended for the building up of the edifice, of the body, of the building that is uh, the church. And so that's kind of a recap, and that leads us to our text today. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, we saw that the first half of this verse, which says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, that actually should be the end of verse 32. It actually belongs to the previous section, so we already talked about that back then. So I'm not going to talk about it uh, today. Why shouldn't everyone speak in uninterpreted tongues? Why shouldn't everyone prophesy all at once? Why shouldn't church today look like a Pentecostal revival service or a Benny Hinn or a Kenneth Copeland performance? The reason is because God is God of, uh, not of confusion, but of order and Peace, And so that brings us to the second half of the verse, which says, as in all the churches of the saints. As in all the churches of the saints. And this is actually a really important half sentence. It's really important that you see this and you see the importance uh, and the context of why this uh, is written as it is. The reason that it's so important is because today we're going to be dealing with the question of gender roles. That is how men and women are to relate, particularly within the church, but also within the home. Today's passage is more just dealing with the corporate gathering. And when it comes to that topic, the topic of gender roles within the church, um, that is uh, obviously one of the most frequently cited responses to the prohibitions, to the uh, restrictions that Paul gives, not only in this text, but elsewhere as well. One of the most common criticisms of that, or one of the, the, the most common ways to kind of argue against what the Bible is saying there, is to just say this is just a cultural thing. That's absolutely by, and, uh, uh, by far the biggest, the most popular response to traditional biblical gender roles, that the prohibitions that we see in certain texts, like here in 1 Corinthians 14, that those prohibitions aren't reflective of this transcultural, permanent will of God, but they're rather a product of a particular cultural abuse. So for instance, you would have people that would say, well, yes, there's prohibitions in, in Corinth, but that's only because of a particular historical context that's happening in Corinth. The Corinthian women were a little bit uppity or proud or arrogant or whatever it might be. Or they might say, yes, there's a prohibition in 1 Timothy, but that's just because the Ephesian women were uneducated. So these aren't intended as these blanket restrictions that are to cover all gender roles for all time. They're for particular cultures. As cultures change, so now these prohibitions are no longer binding. And in response to that, I just want you to notice this phrase, as in all the churches of the saints. How many churches? Some of the churches? Just Corinth? Just Ephesus? 
Again, by the the reason that I mentioned Ephesus is because uh, the uh, one of the most clear texts that we're going to look at uh, later is in First Timothy chapter two, and Timothy at the time is ministering in Ephesus, so that's why Ephesus is important in these conversations. So, is it just Ephesus? Is it just Corinth? Is it just some of the churches? No, it says all of the churches. This isn't just for some one particular ancient church. This is for all of the churches. This is intended to be universally, transculturally, permanently binding. So it's really important that you grasp what's going on here because that's going to disarm the major response to this from those who might not hold to the same uh, reading of the text that uh, I would. So let's see what he says should be the case in all of the churches. 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 35. Through 35 says, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. I'll just be honest, that sounds awkward, right? I've been to a lot of houses of members. That's not like a humble brag or something, but I've been to a lot of your houses. I've seen a lot of your throw pillows, I've seen a lot of the things that you have on uh, your uh, blankets, crocheted or, or whatever, however you put stuff on, on, a, on a blanket. I've seen things that you have printed on coffee mugs. I've seen a lot of verses of Scripture. I've never seen this one for some reason. <laughs> All right? So before we get into this particular text, we need to understand there's these larger theological points to kind of orient us to the conversation. We did this a little bit whenever we talked about the spiritual gifts. We said that there are two evangelical positions you can hold as it relates to the question of miraculous gifts today. Neither of those is heretical. Logically, one is right, the other is wrong, but they're both within the boundaries of orthodox and evangelical theology. Those positions are called cessationism, which holds that tongues and prophecy and other miraculous gifts are no longer active in the church today. They have ceased that's why it's called cessationism. And then on the other end, you have continuationism, which says that all of the gifts of the Spirit are available. That is, they continue. Well, when it comes to the question of gender roles, there are also two camps. I don't think that both of these camps are necessarily as valid options as continuationism and cessationism, but there are two camps. And those two camps are uh, traditionally called, at least over the past 40 years or so, they've been called complementarianism and egalitarianism. What these two camps have in common is that they both hold that men and women are equal. They're equal in regards to worth and value and dignity and so forth. Neither view says that women are inferior. Neither neither view says that women have less of the spirit or less gifted or less competent or something like that. So this isn't misogyny, this isn't chauvinism or something like that. Both camps say that men and women alike share in the Imago Dei and are equal in inherent dignity and worth, and that men and women are both essential for flourishing of the home and the church. But where they differ is in regards to whether or not equality implies interchangeability. Are distinct gender roles reflective of God's divine intent Or are they merely this social construct? That's the difference. Are there particular roles, are there particular responsibilities within the home and in the church that God intends for men and men alone to fulfill and thus are restricted for women? 
Egalitarianism says no. Complementarianism says yes. Now, for the overwhelming majority of church history, the overwhelming majority of Orthodox pastors and theologians would fit on the complementarian side of the spectrum. That was not controversial for the overwhelming majority of something like 1,900 years of church history. But over the past 100 years, with the influence of uh, feminism and Marxism and, and postmodernism and other cultural tins, trends, egalitarianism has become increasingly popular. It's certainly become popular among theological liberals, but even among those who are otherwise rather theologically conservative, it's, it's beginning uh, to gain some steam. So what is complementarianism and what is egalitarianism? Well, complementarianism is the belief that while men and women are equal in value and dignity and worth and essence, nevertheless, God has uh, appointed dis, uh, certain distinct role distinctions. That men and women are complementary, all right? That's where complementarianism comes from. They're, they're fitted, they correspond to one another. They're like, but also unlike. There's similarity, but also dissimilarity. There's unity, but also diversity. And so God has appointed certain role distinctions. Men and women are complementary, but they're not interchangeable. Thus, there are these certain roles, there's certain responsibilities that men have in the home and in the church that women do not. Now, what particular roles and what particular responsibilities are actually restricted is going to be debated within complementarianism because, like continuationism, there isn't just one monolithic complementarian position. Complementarianism itself, and this is why it's maybe not even a helpful term today, complementarianism itself is a spectrum of diverse views. For example, some complementarians would say that the only thing that a woman can't do in the church is serve as an elder, but she could preach, at least on occasion. Others would say she can't preach, but she could teach something like our theological equipping class or something. Others would say she shouldn't preach or teach or serve uh, as a, an elder. All right. So the degree of complementarity that one affirms is going to kind of distinguish where they land on that spectrum and how they actually apply this within their, within their own individual churches. But in general, what distinguishes complementarianism is the idea that there is at least some distinction on the basis of gender. Egalitarianism, on the other hand, says that there should be no role distinctions on the basis of gender. If you remember those uh, old Mia Hamm, Michael Jordan commercials, anything you can do, I can do better, that sort of uh, is the idea that anything a man can do in the church, a woman should be able to do. She can preach, she can serve as a pastor, an elder, whatever it might be. Here at Parkway, we unashamedly hold to the historic complementarian view. And today's passage is one of the main reasons why. It's not the only reason. There are dozens of other relevant texts. But 1 Corinthians 14 is one of the most explicit texts on this particular topic. So let's get into it. Paul starts by saying the women should keep silent in the churches. Notice I didn't hear any men say amen. A little too early to get an elbow to the ribs or something, right? Now, this might, if you're just reading 1 Corinthians 14 in context, this might seem completely out of left field. Paul's talking about prophecy. He's talking about tongues. And all of a sudden, he's joined the little rascals, he-man, woman-haters club, right? That's what it seems like. So why does he suddenly, all of a sudden, out of left field, why does he single out women? Well, if you recall, throughout the context, Paul has been calling for order 
and then also for orderliness. And the way that he does that is by regulating speech for those with various gifts, the gift of tongues and the gifts of prophecy. He says at times, even if you have the gift of tongues, you shouldn't speak. At times, even if you have the gift of prophecy, you're prophesying, someone else has a prophetic word, you should sit down and let them prophesy. So he's regulating the speech of people with particular gifts. And so this seems to be another situation in which there is need for regulation, a need for regulation as it relates to speech. This is another context in which there needs to be a reminder of this role of proper orderly uh, order and also a reminder that occasionally the right to speak should be curtailed, should be restricted for the sake of the gathering. In particular, Paul says that in the corporate gathering, the women should keep silent and not speak. And that sounds pretty harsh because it sounds like this absolute prohibition. At least on the surface, it seems like Paul's saying any and all public speech by a woman is forbidden. That, you know, women should be seen and not heard. Maybe some of you even grew up in a chauvinistic context that actually practiced that. The problem with that particular interpretation, that this is an absolute prohibition of any speech whatsoever, is the context. Paul's already said way back in chapter 11, he's already said that women are allowed to pray and to prophesy in the corporate gathering. So unless you want to conclude that Paul is contradicting himself, you can't take the silence here to be absolute. It's kind of like if your kid is screaming, right, and they're getting on your nerves, and you tell them to be quiet. What you mean in that moment is don't make any noise whatsoever. You're not intending to limit any and all noise. You're intending to limit a particular noise, that is screaming. And that's kind of what Paul is doing here. This isn't a prohibition of speech uh, in general. It's a prohibition of a particular type of speech. Notice that what's going on there is the issue of submission. All right? That's what Paul is doing here. In context, he's been dealing with the question of assessing or evaluation of prophecies. We saw that in the text two weeks ago. So at least in that context, the immediate context, Paul says that women are not to participate. Why not? Because of the same reason that Paul says that women should have some sign of authority on them in chapter 11 because of God's created order. One of the beautiful things that we see as we, we study creation, we look at the book of Genesis in particular, isn't just that God speaks things into existence ex nihilo, out of nothing. That's beautiful, that's good, that's true. But that's not the only thing that we see in the creation account that is beautiful. It's also that God brings order out of chaos. Consider in the book of Genesis, in the, cre the creation account, God creates the earth, but then after creating the earth, it's described as formless and void until he orders it. That's what God does in the days of creation. He separates the day from the night. He separates the sun from the moon. He separates the earth from the sky. He separates the water from the land. And he separates man from woman. And that's intentional. There's an intentionality to that separation there. He doesn't just create this androgynous category of humans, but rather he creates sexual, gendered beings. He creates man and he creates woman in order to make a point. And that point is to show order and orderliness. It shows unity and it shows diversity. By the way, 
the exact same theme that we've seen throughout chapter 12, that within the body of Christ there is unity and there is diversity. Well, that unity and diversity exists within humanity as well with the creation of these two different sexes, these two different genders. By the way, I'm using those interchangeably because historically those are interchangeable. I know that our culture distinguishes gender from sexuality, but I'm going to use those uh, as being synonymous. And so apparently even the creation order of man and woman is important. That man being created before woman isn't just some irrelevant detail. It's loaded with theological import. Earlier I mentioned maybe one of the most helpful passages in understanding complementarianism was from 1 Timothy. I think it might be helpful to understand what Paul means in 1 Corinthians if we actually look at 1 Timothy. So look at 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 14, which says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a a transgressor. There's a lot you can notice there. First, there is this command for women to learn. That's actually something that would be very countercultural in the ancient world that in uh, Greco-Roman and in Jewish cultures, there is not this strong command. In fact, there is a prohibition, uh, particularly in, within, within Greco-Roman culture, for women to learn. Notice also that he doesn't merely or, uh, argue on the basis of the order of the fall, but also the order of creation, that Adam was uh, formed first, then Eve. But notice what's restricted in 1 Timothy. Notice what's restricted here. Within the context, there are two things that are prohibited. Teaching men and exercising authority over men. Now, some people would combine those together. They say that this is what's called a hendiadis, which is in Greek when you use two things to refer uh, to one, like it's raining cats and dogs. You don't mean cats and dogs. You're using those things together to say one uh, thing. Uh, and so some people would say this is a hendiadis. So it's not prohibiting two things. It's just prohibiting one. I don't think that that actually works uh, grammatically. That's too technical to discuss here. But if you have questions about that, feel free to email me. I'll send you a paper I wrote on that. But my answer as to why it is that Paul commands women to not speak in 1 Corinthians, why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, don't speak. He gives this what seems like a blanket prohibition. The reason is because the type of speech that he's referring to in the context of 1 Corinthians would violate the spirit of what he's talking about in 1 Timothy 2. In other words, women are not to speak in in church, according to 1 Corinthians, when doing so would involve either of these two things that he's prohibited in 1 Timothy 2. When doing so would involve either teaching biblical truth to men and or exercising authority over them. So 1 Corinthians doesn't mean that women can't speak at all. I'm walking by you, I say hello, and you just keep your mouth shut or something like that. That's not at all what 1 Corinthians is saying. Again, he's already said women can pray and prophesy. This cannot be an absolute, universal, blanket uh, uh, prohibition. So 1 Corinthians doesn't mean that women can't speak at all, but that they can't speak in ways which would violate this principle of male headship, this principle of male authority within the home and within the church. Now, up until the last 100 years, that was not controversial. That was not scandalous at all. But today, that certainly is. All right? There's a reason that someone doesn't just stand up and read this, typically. 
There's a reason that no one's favorite passage is 1 Corinthians 14 here. All right? Thousands of books have been written to show that this view is misogynistic, that this view is chauvinistic, that this view is archaic, that this view is oppressive, and people will bend over backwards to try to make the text say what it doesn't say because they don't like what it says. Even some churches that actually fall on the complementarian side of the spectrum, that fall in the complementarian camp that would call themselves complementarian, seem somewhat embarrassed by this text. They don't deny it, but they certainly don't delight in it. That's something I've always found strange about a lot of evangelicalism. For example, I know of churches that would say, yeah, we're Calvinistic, but we aren't going to make a big deal out of it. I'm like, I don't understand how that works. If you really understand Reformed theology, you should exult in it. If that's a truth that you can just kind of hide away in your statement of faith without really addressing it, without regularly talking about the implications of it, I don't think you really understand it. And that's what it's like to say, we're complementarian, but we don't really like it, or we're going to shy away from it, or we're going to downplay it or something. Again, why? By definition, God is good and his word is good. So if complementarianism or Calvinism or whatever other ism is true, then it's good. It's not something to be embarrassed by. It's something to exult in. The only thing that we should be ashamed about when it comes to the word is how embarrassed we often are by it. But culture and sin does this incredible job of trying to turn the good guy into the bad guy. I saw that even last night with the whole, if you followed the, the Colleyville Synagogue uh, SWAT uh, situation, where on Twitter, all of these people were defending the guy who had taken all of these hostages. Culture has this way of making the good guy the bad guy and the bad guy the good guy, making what's good seem bad and vice versa. And you see that even in Genesis, right? That God prohibits man and woman from eating of the fruit. Why does he do that? He does that for their joy and for their flourishing, that they may have life. And what does the serpent do? He convinces them that God is doing it to rob them of joy, to rob them of flourishing, to rob them of life. So this is a tactic of sin. This is a tactic of culture. And nowhere is that tactic of making what's good seem bad and vice versa more prevalent than in discussions of gender. Modern feminism, and by that I'm distinguishing from the original strain of uh, Feminism, which there's actually some good things in just saying women should be able to vote and all that kind of stuff. But modern feminism is not like that. There's been three waves of feminism. We've talked before about uh, that. Go back and listen to some theological uh, equipping classes. But modern feminism is presented as this great emancipator of women when in reality nothing destroys femininity like feminism. What's the underlying whisper of modern third-wave feminism. It's that you'll find your worth, you'll find your value, you'll find freedom, you'll find acceptance, you'll find identity, you'll find meaning if you do what? Well, if you cast off motherhood. That's why modern feminism is so attached to the pro-choice cause. So cast off motherhood. Cast off your traditional role as a wife. You'll find value, you'll find worth, you'll find dignity only if you take off that apron and you put on a business suit. In other words, if you make yourself more like a man. How demeaning is that when you really think about it? 
How utterly insulting is it to tell a young girl that her beauty and her worth, that those aren't inherent, that those aren't rooted in the Imago Dei, but they're only inherited. She can earn them if she takes on these socially defined masculine roles, that she can't find dignity and value as a woman unless she becomes like a man. She's got to be able to do anything a man can do because equality demands interchangeability, that who God made you isn't good. You have to remake yourself into some other image. You'll only be truly happy as a woman if you become like a man. That's what feminism actually says. On the other hand, God says that men and women are different, and those differences are for our individual joy and for our collective flourishing. So rather than lamenting, rather than disregarding, rather than denying or downplaying role distinctions, Scripture beckons us to celebrate them. God's boundaries, we talk about this all the time, that God's boundaries aren't given to rob us of joy, but rather to help us experience a deeper joy. It's kind of like driving along a mountain road, right? Those guardrails there aren't there to keep you from enjoying the ride. They're there to prevent the ride from becoming tragic. And that's what God's boundaries do. And God gives a boundary here in 1 Corinthians 14. In context, we're speaking would involve teaching or exercising authority. Within the mixed gendered assembly of the church, women are to refrain. They're to refrain for God's glory, yes. They're to refrain for the flourishing of the community, yes. But they're also to refrain for their own joy, for their own flourishing. Now, why does he talk about asking your husband at home? What's most likely happening, according to most commentators, is that some Corinthian women were asking questions in a way which was intended to kind of undermine male authority either of their own husband or the elders or something like that. So just like earlier we saw that don't speak doesn't literally mean don't say anything at all. So this prohibition of questions here doesn't mean that you can't ask any questions at all. It means you shouldn't ask questions in a way that is intending to or even has the unintended implication or the effect of undermining authority. That's something we see throughout Scripture, by the way. The difference between the types of questions that we ask. Consider the case of Mary. If you remember the story, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, both of them received this angelic message of this coming birth, the birth of Jesus, the birth of John the Baptist. Both of them, in response to that angelic revelation, are going to ask questions. But if you'll notice, Mary is blessed as a result of her question, and she's answered. Zechariah is cursed. How is he cursed? He's not able to speak for a few months. Why the difference? They both asked questions. Why the difference in way, the way that their questions were answered? Because the heart behind the question was profoundly different, was radically different. That's what I think is behind this reference here about asking questions in 1 Corinthians 14. Let me give you a real-life demonstration of this. About four years, uh, about four years ago, we used to do theological equipping back in the chapel before we outgrew that space. Uh, and so we had this uh, older lady visit the church for a couple of weeks. And both of the, uh, the times that she visited, maybe two, maybe three times, but every time that she visited, uh, she would ask a question. But back then, rather than texting in questions like we do today, we simply had people raise their hands to ask questions. And so we did that. So two weeks in a row, three weeks, three weeks in a row, I don't remember exactly how uh, often, but she asked a question. 
But what we noticed was that those questions weren't really questions. They were attempts to show that she was super knowledgeable. And not only that, but they were also attempts to challenge what we had taught, to kind of undermine what had been taught. So we pulled her aside afterwards. We gently, lovingly encouraged her to ask questions in a more gracious manner, to be more gracious to us and so forth. She left the church instead, and that's why we text in questions now. But <laughs> So I don't think Paul's point here is that a woman can never ask a question. I don't think uh, Paul's point is that the only person that a woman can ask a question of is of her husband. I think there is a principle in Scripture of the husband in general being the primary discipler of his wife. There are exceptions for that if your husband is an unbeliever or uh, there are other uh, exceptions and so forth. So does it mean that she can't ever ask questions at church? No. What does it mean? It means that the prohibition of teaching and exercising authority that we talked about would extend to context where a question is used to try to accomplish that. Think of, uh, as an illustration of this, think of a lawyer. Think of a lawyer that's questioning someone on the stand. No offense if you're a a lawyer. Uh, But think of a lawyer questioning someone on the stand and that lawyer attempting to trap the person that's on the stand. Or think of uh, the Pharisees when they asked Jesus a question. The Pharisees never asked Jesus a question because they actually want to learn. Why do they ask him? In order to what? To test him, to challenge him, to try him, right? That's the type of question that I think is being prohibited here, a question that would serve as a pretense to exercise authority or to teach or whatever it might be. There's a lot more we could say here. We need to keep going. Verse 36, or was it from you that the word of God came, or are you the only ones it has uh, reached? So here, Paul reminds the Corinthians that the word of God didn't originate in Corinth, And it doesn't terminate in Corinth. So why does he mention that? That seems strange. That seems like I wouldn't have, uh, you know, put 36 in here after uh, 35. The reason that he does so is as a rhetorical point to expose the pride of the Corinthians. If the gospel doesn't originate in Corinth or terminate in Corinth, then who in the world are they to decide to do as they please? Bear in mind how the sermon began, as in all the churches of the saints. The Corinthians, they think that they're spiritual. And they think that they're so spiritual that they think that they're kind of special. They think that they've heard from God, but it seems like they think that their own thoughts and their own feelings are sufficient to reject Paul's counsel. They think they have this new prophetic revelation that supersedes what other churches do. And maybe even what the apostles say. So Paul asked these rhetorical questions to expose that pride. And that same idea comes up in 37 through 38, which says, If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. You can kind of see now how that flows out of verse 36. As much as Paul may value the prophetic word, and he certainly does, as we've seen in chapter 14, It's always subjugated in his mind to the apostolic word, to the inspired word, to the inscripturated word. That's one of the reasons that I wouldn't define prophecy today as being infallibly authoritative. We talked before about how that's at the crux of the difference between cessationism and continuationism. If modern prophecy is intended to be infallible and authoritative, then I think you should be a cessationist. 
But if there is evidence that suggests that contemporary prophecy isn't infallibly authoritative, I think that's a huge argument in favor of continuationism. I think the fact that Paul subjects prophecy to Scripture implies that modern prophecy doesn't have the same innate authority as Scripture. Speaking of Scripture and prophecy, it's interesting to me that when it comes to most charismatic circles, how interesting it is that there seems to be such little regard for things like serious Scripture and study of theology and so forth. That's why, you know, uh, charismatic circles tend to be breeding, gro- breeding grounds for all kinds of heresy. Not only the prosperity gospel, but Trinitarian error. Benny Hinn once says, there's not three persons in the Trinity. How many are there? Anybody know? Each person in the Trinity has itself three persons. Three times three, nine, right? Benny Hinn, and then he's rich, right? What's God's response? All right, this is an inversion of Paul's order. In Paul's theology, in the biblical theology, in God's mind, the subjective word, the subjective prophetic word is always under, in submission to, the objective biblical word. But there is this inversion that's taken place in Corinth. The subjective prophetic word has usurped the place of the objective biblical word. And so Paul's response is that anyone who is actually prophetic Anyone who is actually spiritual, anyone who is biblically charismatic or whatever it might be, should treasure the Word of God above their own thoughts and feelings. After all, the heart can't be divided from the head. The heart can't love what the mind doesn't know. You can't love a God that you yourself don't know. Besides, knowing the Word is how you are to assess and to evaluate prophecy according to our previous texts. So notice also, this is a helpful passage in understanding what it is that Paul thought about his letters. Did Paul think that what he was writing was authoritatively binding? And the answer to that is yes. He says that what he writes is a command of the Lord. Paul, when he, Paul sits down to write, he doesn't think he's writing a Dear Abby column or some other helpful hint. His writing is the very word of God. It's a command of the Lord. It's inspired by God, and thus it's authoritative. It's inerrant. That's the reason it would later be recognized as canonical when the church had the opportunity to gather together all the various letters of the New Testament. Now, this passage is going to mirror something that we've seen a couple of times already in the book. Look at 1 Corinthians 3.18. Let no one deceive himself. And notice how this kind of mirrors this language. If anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized and so forth. If anyone amongst you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Or in chapter 8, verse 2, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. In each of these passages, Paul is going to leverage something that the Corinthians already think about themselves, and then he's going to offer a corrective. If this is really true, if you're really wise, then you'll recognize how foolish you are. So in chapter 3, the Corinthians think they're wise. Paul responds, true wisdom is not worldly wisdom. The wisdom of God is folly to the world. And then in chapter 14 here, we see that true spirituality and the prophetic word doesn't lead us away from Scripture. It leads us toward it. If the word of God that you hear or you feel 
when you pray, we talked about this a little bit even in theological equipping during the Q&A. If the word of God that you hear or that you feel when you pray doesn't agree with the word of God that you read in the Bible, what you have heard isn't the word of God. It's something else. It's your flesh, it's the enemy, whatever it might be. So what if you don't recognize that? Paul writes, then you yourself aren't recognized. If anyone doesn't recognize this, he is not recognized. Now that certainly means that he's not supposed to be recognized as a prophet by the community, but I think it actually means even more than that. I think he means that if anyone doesn't recognize this reality, then he isn't recognized by God. Why not? Because his sheep hear his voice. That's why we'll spend an hour next week in theological equipping talking about reading and memorizing scripture, and we'll spend another week after that talking about studying it. To familiarize ourselves with the voice of God, you need to hear his word. You need to be familiar with it. It needs to be something that you're constantly breathing in so that when someone, you know, pokes you, you bleed Bible. You can't recognize a voice you never hear. Think back 25 years ago. Right before anyone had cell phones or anyone had caller ID, and the phone rang and you had no clue who it was, and so you were actually excited about the fact that the phone was ringing. That was you know, the, maybe the highest point of your day or something. So you'd answer the phone and you'd have no idea who was calling, so you'd say hello, and then one of two things would happen. Either that person would introduce themselves, hey, Jeff, it's so-and-so, or they would just start talking. But how many people actually fit in that latter category? All right, probably not many, your mom, your dad, your kids, your siblings, your best friend. But that's about it. You had a few people whose voice you were so instantly familiar with that you would recognize it because you'd spent so much time with them. And I think the same should be true of God's voice. We should be so familiar with it through being saturated with Scripture that we see uh, we have the ability to assess and to evaluate our own feelings, our own thoughts, the voices that we hear in our heads, and so forth. And that's what Paul is saying here. If after reading this, you think gender roles are archaic, gender roles are stupid, they're just misogynistic, they're just chauvinistic, that just means you're listening to some other voice other than God's. That is the primary work of the enemy, by the way. In the garden, what does the enemy say? Has God really said? And then what does he say? Well, is it really good? That's his strategy. That's exactly what is being shouted today in trying to dismiss what God says about gender. Has God really said that? Should that actually be in the Bible? Or is it really good? Maybe that's not good. Maybe these traditional biblical roles are actually oppressive or unjust or whatever it might be. So being prophetic and being spiritual isn't marked by having these spontaneous experiences or having miraculous gifts. If you really want to know what it is to be prophetic and to be spiritual, it's having the learned skill of recognizing the inspired word of God in divine writings. Verse 39. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophecy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Now that we're kind of wrapping up chapters 12 through 14, Paul circles back around to prophesy, to prophecy and to tongues. And notice what he says about each. About each. He says, desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. In other words, yet again, Paul's preference is clear. One is to be encouraged. The other is simply not to be forbidden. By the way, 
This passage here in 1 Corinthians 14, 39, towards the end of the book, mirrors what we see at the beginning, 1 Corinthians 14, 1, uh, the beginning of the chapter and the end of the chapter, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. These types of passages, 1 Corinthians 14, 1, 1 Corinthians 14, 39, these passages are why I was so challenged and I was so convicted this summer as I studied the gifts. I was what you uh, might call a closet continuationist or a cautious continuationist. I, st- I thought the, God, the gifts probably continue because I couldn't find anything in Scripture that would say that they ceased. But I didn't really feel any compulsion whatsoever to actually desire the gifts. And even to this day, months later, I've still never experienced the miraculous gifts. I've never seen them evidenced clearly. I was just kind of open to the idea of the continuation of the gifts because I couldn't make a compelling biblical case that they see. So I was a continuationist, but I didn't really care. I didn't really care to go beyond that. I didn't care if I ever saw or experienced things like prophecy or tongues or gifts of healing, etc. I was a continuationist, but I was disinterested. I was apathetic about the gifts. And one of the things that I was challenged by as I studied the positions was that mine is actually the one position that I don't think you can consistently hold. You could be a cessationist. Some of our elders, some of our members are cessationists. You could be continuationists. Some of our elders, some of our, our, our members are continuationists. But I don't think you could be an apathetic, disinterested continuationist. I don't think you can say, I think the gifts continue, but I don't really desire to experience or to exercise them. Why not? Because this text explicitly says to earnestly desire to prophecy. Does that mean that Parkway is going to have prophesy nights, prophecy nights? That we're going to speak in tongues during services? Absolutely not. Go back and listen to all four of our sermons. Don't let this you know, one sermon somehow scare you or something. Go listen to all four of these sermons in 1 Corinthians 14. We talk through this issue. We make it very clear that though our elders are split on the issue of continuationism versus cessationism, all of us believe what is most edifying, what is most encouraging for our weekly services is exactly what we are already doing. Preaching and singing and praying. So don't think we're going to get weird on you or something. That's not what I'm saying. So does this mean, though, this is a good question. Carl actually brought this up in our staff meeting recently. Does this mean, though, that we're forbidding tongues? The the text clearly says don't forbid speaking in tongues, and yet we don't include it in our weekly rhythm. In fact, if someone were to stand up now and speak in tongues, we would have that person ushered out of here. So that's a good question. That's a fair question without a perfect answer. To that, I would just say yes and no. We are forbidding tongues within this normal Sunday gathering of the church, but we're not forbidding them in your own home, perhaps in other uh, formal or informal gatherings of the church, community groups or whatever it might be. We're regulating the context, not completely forbidding them forever. That might seem like a cop-out. It's the best, I think, that we can do without splitting the church into a cessationist church and a continuationist church. I think that the better option, the more biblical option, is to adopt a position of saying that we're not going to be divided by tongues, we're not going to be divided by prophecy. I think that's actually more important than trying to figure out how to make it all fit as much as I might love to figure out a way to make it all fit. Verse 40. But all things should be done decently and in order. This is why we're not going to get all weird. There's this overarching principle that we've already seen a handful of times in the books, uh, in this book, all right? There's this false dichotomy 
that exists, maybe in your own heart, but certainly within evangelical culture, there is this false dichotomy that says if you're really going to be spiritual, you have to be spontaneous. You have to be spastic, right? When in reality, the same Spirit who gives us the gifts, the spiritual gifts, even the miraculous gifts, he also gave us the Scriptures. And that same Spirit not only gives us the Scriptures, but he gives us self-control. And he is a God who delights in harmony and peace and order. In other words, the gifts, whether miraculous or not, aren't antithetical to order. There has to be a way to harmonize the two. I love how one commentator puts it when he writes, this is David Garland, the spirit of ardor is also the spirit of order. Ardor, by the way, means enthusiasm or passion. The spirit of ardor is also the spirit of order. And that concludes chapters 12 through 14 in the discussion on the gifts. So let me kind of summarize uh, what we've seen regarding the gifts, and then we will uh, dive down into applying this particular passage. Five things that we've seen regarding the gifts, at least five. Number one, we all, has, we all have various gifts, whether rel- relatively mundane or miraculous. Number two, the church needs diverse gifts for its full flourishing. Number three, nobody has all the gifts. And thus we need each other. Lone Ranger Christianity doesn't work. Right? You're saved into a, a personal relationship with Jesus, not a private relationship with Jesus. Number four, stewardship of gifts should be marked by love and a desire to encourage and edify others. And then fifth, whatever gifts you have, they can be controlled and should be controlled in such a way as to promote corporate order and edification. So that's a summary of what we've seen over the past three chapters. With that in mind, what do we do with today's text in particular, 33 through 40. There's a lot you could do depending on where you fall individually. That's one of the, the, the beauties and also the difficulties of preaching is that in a room of 500 people, there are 500 different applications depending on where you land uh, on uh, various spectrums and what you believe and don't believe and so forth. And so regarding the gifts... This might be a reminder, and this might be something that would challenge you to consider studying the gifts or praying for other gifts than you currently have or greater stewardship of the gifts that you do have. If the text says to earnestly desire to prophecy, then you need to wrestle with whether or not you're actually fulfilling that command or if you should fulfill that command if you're a cessationist or something like that. So that's regarding the gifts. You should wrestle with are you actually fulfilling the commands that we've seen throughout chapters 12 through 14. Then regarding gender, I think the biggest question of the day for you to wrestle with is whether or not you feel any embarrassment, any shame, any offense when you think about this text. When you think about this text, when you think about others like it, which provide these boundaries, which provide these restrictions as it relates to gender, And if so, the key is for you to remember that God hasn't given these boundaries to oppress or to disempower you in particular or women in general. Rather, he's given them in order to show the beauty of his diverse creation. As day is distinguished from night, sun from moon, water from land, so man is distinguished from, differentiated from, woman. For the glory of God and for the flourishing of humanity, the solution for us isn't to downplay that diversity but rather to celebrate it, to see its inherent beauty and to savor it. So maybe some of you need to repent today. 
I doubt many of you in this room this morning, unless you're literally first-time visitor, and if so, you're probably really frustrated at me right now, but I doubt that many of us in this room are strident third-wave feminists, right? Like those don't last long here at Parkway. But I also think it's naive to think that culture has, hasn't, at least to some degree, corrupted our thinking on gender. It would be naive, I think, for us to think that we all land on the exact same point of the complementarity spectrum. I don't think many people, whether men or women in this room, wrestle with whether or not biblical gender roles are true. But I do wonder if deep down some of you, maybe even many of you, don't secretly wrestle with whether or not they're actually good and beautiful. I think you think they're true, but do you really wrestle with whether or not they're good and beautiful? Because if so, that's where the enemy will attack. That's what we saw in the garden, right? He begins with, did God say? And then he moves there. Once there's no real opening there, he moves in. He goes back around by asking about God's goodness and character. And I've seen that pattern play out hundreds of times in this discussion. Dozens of friends who accepted complementarianism intellectually, but they never really delighted in it. There was always some kind of begrudging acceptance of the church they were in or the community or the friends that they were with. And so they kind of accepted it while, you know, peer pressure almost. But years later, when they're no longer around those friends or after they felt that discomfort for years, what's the result? Eventually it becomes too hard. When your heart and your mind are at odds, so what do we do? We sacrifice the mind. And all of a sudden, you no longer believe what you say you once believed. So my encouragement to you is that if you don't actually find this vision of complementarity, this vision of role distinctions, this, this vision of submission and order within the church, if you don't find those things to be delightful, to be lovely, not just true, but beautiful and good and right, if you don't praise God for them, if you don't glorify God for them, if you don't exult in them, if you're ashamed of them, embarrassed by them, offended by them, my encouragement to you is that you would repent, that you would be honest enough, not only to yourself, but also to others, and to ask for help. So they might rightly think in order to worship more freely and more fully. So come and chat with us. The elders would love to give you resources or sit down and chat with you. And then lastly, my encouragement, if you do, if you find yourself where you do delight in these truths, that you would praise God. Thinking biblically isn't something that we just conjure up on our own. It's one of the, the, the good things about starting our theological equipping this semester with prayer. It's because all of God's works in us, even our ability to ascertain biblical truth, is dependent upon God's grace. So to that end, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I confess that it is uh, challenging to us. That there's nothing in our culture, there's nothing in our flesh that delights in this. That we gravitate towards two ends of the spectrum. That we gravitate towards this view that uh, says that men and women should be 
undifferentiated and they should be interchangeable. Or we gravitate towards this view where there is actual oppression and abuse. And I pray that you would help us to avoid both of those extremes and instead to think rightly and live rightly in light of your revealed word. I pray that this would be something that we wouldn't merely confess with our mouths, but we would also love with our hearts. And only you can work that in us by your spirit. So we pray for help in Christ's name. Amen.